Hi, this is Todd Haymore, Secretary of Agriculture and Forestry for the Commonwealth of Virginia. I listen to Heritage Radio Network. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. This is Sam Edwards from Virginia with SurreyFarms.com, proud sponsors of the Heritage Radio Network. Hello, everybody. I'm Patrick Martins. This is the main course. How are you, Jack? I'm good. I'm excited for this intro. This intro is going to be interesting. Um, we're sponsored today by Sam Edwards and S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Sam's been a real visionary, you know. When, yeah. Remember how quick people were to overlook our importance at Heritage Radio Network, Jack? Yes, we were just talking about that. Sam was part of the very few businessmen who used his position, his platform, uh, to create you know an opportunity for us. You know, I thought you were going to say he was one of the guys that overlooked us. He does. He has a camera in here. I always wondered <laughs> why he chose to install that. But um, we're broadcasting out of Roberta's. So we're going to have a, we have a very good show. Uh, we're going to have uh, Secretary Todd Haymore. He's the Secretary of Agriculture and Forestry in the state of Virginia, the great Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, but before that, we're going to kind of cover a couple stories. Um, Michigan's Department of Natural Resources recently issued a final ruling on its invasive species order. Invasive species order, it's called ISO. Um, They came out with this for swine, and it targets destructive feral species. The penalty for harboring these feral species is up to two years in jail and $20,000 in fines. The, th- the list of characteristics, this is the problem, that they use to define feral basically covers absolutely everything heritage hogs or even hogs raised outdoors would carry. For example, straight tails, curly tails, pointy ears, floppy ears, coarse hair, patterns, spots or band stripes, colors, black, brown, red. The law identifies any crossbreeds or hybrids as illegal as well. So obviously when you read those characteristics, I mean, that puts at risk all heritage and rare breed pigs. So, I mean, that's a really sloppily written law because I can't imagine that a great state like Michigan would come out with a law that would, you know, put at risk endangered species that protect biodiversity you know, and that represent, yeah, kind of gastronomic and cultural heritage to the world. I mean, I can't believe they would do that. I mean, that's like book burning. Um, You know, if agribusiness is behind this, you know, and, and they're trying to just destroy all competition, then there's a big problem. And you know, certainly we can't take anything for granted with big companies. So uh, we have created a hotline for this issue. So if anyone in Michigan hears of any confiscated pigs or, you know, uh, penalties or, you know, things of that nature in the state of Michigan, the hotline, here's the phone number, 718-389-0985. 
and uh, you can call and, and tell what happened, and then uh, you know basically we'll fly Jack out there to cover yes. the story. On that number sounds HRN. familiar. It is the Heritage offices. Awesome. Um, yeah, Heritage Radio Network offices also. Um, yeah, Jack. So are you ready to go out if something happens? I'm ready. Now, of course, if the law was just written too broadly and and you know sloppily, you know it should be fixed right right away. Also, it's important to remember, you know, people who have bigger farms who let their pigs kind of go into the forest and eat acorns and things like that and then come back onto the land. I mean, those pigs should be protected. Um, anyway, another thing everyone can do besides the hotline is call Governor Rick Schneider. I'm not even going to give his email. Let's actually leave long, detailed messages that some intern has to answer. This is the phone number for Governor Rick Schneider, 517 517- three three five seven eight five eight so basically tell him to you know protect heritage breeds i mean it's it's weird that they could publish such a sloppy law because again you know i can't really believe that they're going to act on the heritage breed side of the way the law is written but you know it puts in this like very low category by sustainable rules you know puts them in a very low category like these two companies anglo-american and Northern Dynasty. I mean, these companies are trying to plant that big pebble mine right in the heart of the world's last wild food supply, you know, which is wild salmon up in Alaska. So we're putting out an APB, an all points bulletin. Children, if you're listening and your father or mother works for Anglo-American or Northern Dynasty, you can throw their computer in the pool. Jack, wow! Do you have a? Uh, <laughs> don't you? Weren't you going to play the cop song? Heritage Radio is not responsible for any computer damage from being thrown into the pool. Thank you, Jack. <laughs> then uh, also one last thing before we t- come to Todd Haymore, the Secretary of Agriculture and Forestry for the state of Virginia. James McWilliams wrote a really ridiculous op-ed. I mean, I was even surprised that the Times published it. Um, it was called "The Myths of Sustainable Meat." And it was just so ridiculous. And, you know, there wasn't even a real point to it, a common thread. It, it just said basically that small farms are like big farms. And that was basically the theme. So uh, the only thing we can say about James is this is just me guessing because I've never met him. But I would guess right. hugely unpopular at school. Oh, yeah. Beat up a lot. Listens to Rush Limbaugh. Oh, yeah. You know, I just invite him, come to Brooklyn. No one knows who you are, but, you know, Brooklyn will weed you out. What's it? It's McMillan? James McWilliams. McWilliams. Yeah, it was a real strange article. I think maybe we should book him for the show. Didn't educate anyone on anything. I mean, it didn't Mm. help the bad guys and it didn't help the good guys. Um we're going to have Todd Haymore. Then our next guest after Todd is going to be Larry Bokel, and he's going to give us a basic State of the Union on trucking in the United States. It's, uh, you know, the mechanisms by which commerce runs, and, you know, very few radio stations give time to the trucking community for how it's all going out there. So um, we're going to take a short break and come back with Todd Haymore. So easy to get lost in. Caught in a game that's played But you'll wake someday to find you're caught up in a trap that's laid But you believe a lie that someone tells When you know that it can't be true Or would you ever blindly follow whatever is in front of you? Don't believe 
The following program was sponsored by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Summertime is not the only time when barbecue is welcome. At S. Wallace Edwards and Sons, Sam Edwards has been working his magic on ribs, briskets, pit-cooked pulled pork, and much, much more. Add a few of their sides and the party is complete. Entertaining has never been so easy. To order, go to virginiatraditions.com. Well, welcome back, everybody. Um, we're really excited to have in studio uh, Todd Haymore, the Secretary of Agriculture and Forestry for the state of Virginia. We are broadcasting out of Roberta's Restaurant at 261 Moore Street, and we're sponsored today by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, our good friend Sam Edwards. So uh, welcome, Todd. Thanks so much for coming in. Patrick, thanks. It's an honor to be on the show. I've heard about the show uh, from my staff over the years and from Sam Edwards, but so this is the first uh, for me to be here with you, and I'm uh, looking forward to it. Not first time in Brooklyn, though. No, not first time okay. in Brooklyn. I've spent some time up here before. Well, this is definitely, you were the first Secretary of Agriculture and Forestry uh, that we've ever had in studio, that's for sure. Okay. And you've been telling me so many interesting facts uh, about, it, you know, about forestry and agriculture and, you know, one out of every 10 jobs, uh, you know, is, is falls under those two categories. I mean, it's $80 billion a year. So we're talking about, you know, a very, very big part of Virginia. Um, but before we start and, and get into the business of it, congratulations on your event last night at uh, Trump Tower. Yeah, thanks. That was uh, very exciting. We were up here uh, on an economic development mission, uh, but uh, we were also promoting Virginia wine, tourism, film, and food. And last night, uh, one of Virginia's newest winery owners, Donald Trump and Eric Trump, his son, hosted us for a reception that uh, we're glad that you were able to make and taste some of our finest foods and some of our best wines. So, it's a fun event last night. And uh, Governor Bob McDonald was there? Yes. The governor uh, is everywhere we go on domestic and international trade missions. The governor leads the charge, and he has made it a priority to include Virginia um, wine and food uh, products on those uh, trade missions. As we promote more exports from Virginia, whether it's exporting to uh, New York City, mm-hmm. Brooklyn, or exporting as far away as China. Uh, that's part of our economic development mission. It's a top priority for the governor. Very interesting. Well, uh, this is just an aside, but you you told me that the uh, Virginia is the only state in the union where a governor can only serve a four term, uh, a four, four year term, one There's four no, year term. Yeah, That's right. Can't get reelected. That goes back to the founding of our of our country, actually, mm-hmm. and the founding of our state. And it's held true throughout these two hundred plus years that uh, the governor can serve that one four year term. So you have a lot of work that you want to get done in a four year time because you know you can't succeed yourself. And to use a maybe a food term we we know our expiration date it's uh, <laughs> january uh, 14th of t- 2014 interesting so tell us what is your mandate as the secretary of uh, agriculture and forestry for the state of virginia well the governor's made it very clear to me that i'm um, to work with our producers our, our growers our, our farmers all across the state to help them move, move more product into the marketplace and our philosophy patrick is 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 the grow local buy local and sell global i mean we're trying we're working with everyone from promoting farmers markets, you know, giving the farmers instant uh, access to customers, trying to increase the amount of farmers markets in the state of Virginia, all the way through growing our exports. We just announced about a month ago that exports, agricultural exports from Virginia reached an all-time high in 2011, about uh, $2.4 billion. So the governor has made it very clear 
global, but by, you know, the local scene all the way to the global scene in agriculture and forestry products. So that's the mandate. And we've made some great success. We've got a great staff at the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, Charles Green, who is the Director of Marketing and Development at uh, at uh, Department of Agriculture, is my right-hand man on a lot of these uh, issues. And wherever I go in the world with the governor, Charles is, is right there with us. So mm-hmm. and he's got a great staff there that are doing the same thing, working with companies like Sam Edwards and uh, all, you know, we've got countless other Virginia finest uh, producers in the state of Virginia. So really trying to open more marketplaces for them, whether it's domestic uh, or, or international. So tell me how your job divides out between the agricultural side and the forestry side. Um, I would say on a day-to-day basis, um, because of the mandate on, on providing new markets for um, or, or trying to open new markets for our producers, um, agriculture probably takes up a majority of it, but we also have a great export business with our forestry products. So when you combine together, I would say because of the export mandate, I'm probably spending 70, 75% of my time mm-hmm. working on uh, promoting agriculture and forestry product exports. And that's opening those new markets, trying to find new uh, buyers, whether they be government procurement officials in countries where the government's making decisions or new private sector companies in these foreign countries that will you can partner with our producers. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that's that's the most of what I'm doing. And it's well, a, give us some examples, some concrete like products, for instance, that you're particularly working on both from the ag side and the forestry for, side. Well, just two examples. I think you know, were spending a lot of time promoting our wine industry, our, and you were able to take advantage of that last night. Uh, we are um, the fifth largest wine producer in the country now, California, Oregon, Washington State, New York State being fourth, and then Virginia fifth. And we're really trying to get our wines into the global marketplace. They're an old-world-style wine. <clears throat> they're they're like European, um, uh, Italian, French wines. So while we're competing with California and the West Coast, we're really not because our wines are different. So we're spending a lot of time going around the, around the world trying to open new markets there. On the forestry side, um, I think the best example of the things that we're trying to do is, um, in some places, remove bans that are in place on our forest products. In fact, China is one of our largest importers of, of – or was one of our largest importers of uh, of hardwood, softwood logs. Okay. But because of a ban that's been in place for about a year now – in fact, it's about a year this week yeah. – uh, uh, we're working with the Chinese government, Chinese officials there. In fact, we're hosting them in a couple of weeks in Virginia to help have this ban removed. So our producers, our farmers, our shippers, and everybody along that uh, that food chain in the forestry industry will have more opportunities to move those products in the global marketplace in China being one of our largest customers. Interesting. Is there a particular attribute to the wood there that uh, they ship all the way from Virginia? Virginia all the way across? Uh, we're producing some of the finest uh, hardwood and softwood uh, uh, products in the world and our products in demand uh, because of a, uh, a nematode issue that was found on a shipment uh, going from uh, Virginia into China about a year ago. The Chinese put a ban in place mm-hmm. and as a result, our um, our producers have lost millions of dollars in business. And as you know, once that product leaves the port, you know, the money trickles back down to the economy all the way to the local, you know, some of the smallest rural communities in Virginia. Mm. And when you lose millions and millions of dollars, it's not just affecting that ex- that customer who's selling to that client in China. Sure. It's that trickle down all the way back to the farms that that's the true impact is felt. So it's why we're working really hard to have that ban resolved or removed, and we hope that we'll have a positive resolution here in the near future. Well, back to the ag side, what are Virginia's most unique products? I was really fascinated to see the array of, of uh, cheeses, oysters, scallops, uh, hams. Tell us a little bit about what you 
like to you know people to taste when they come down there well my grandfather as i mentioned to you earlier off the air i was born and raised on my grandfather's farm in southern virginia he used to tell me as a child that virginia was producing everything from apples to zucchini <laughs> and it's a sort of a you know the spectrum of the alphabet a little bit of a cliche i guess but it's true and uh, uh other than some citrus products we are producing just about uh, everything that you can possibly imagine i think our virginia ham the edwards hams that you we talked about earlier uh, our peanuts are known around the world as some of the finest our oysters our scallops our crabs our cheeses i could go on and on mm-hmm. and on but we really are blessed in virginia you mentioned earlier as we started the show agriculture is the top industry in the state and we really really do have a very very diversified portfolio of products and again it's it's sort of running the gamut i, I start with uh, apples on the a side and go all the way through and uh, our apples are, are in demand around the world you, you get the picture. It's a yeah. little bit of everything. It's we, got great weather down there. I we mean, have four seasons. A lot. Yeah, we have four seasons. You know, we and we're blessed. We have nice. We have the Chesapeake Bay and, mm-hmm. and the Atlantic Ocean on one side. We have mountains uh, on the other. I mean, you can literally in Virginia be at the beach and you could be in the mountains you know, uh, enjoying yourself less than three hours and I know other states probably can say some of the same thing but mm-hmm. we really are um, four seasons uh, we have ice free uh, conditions at our port that helps us move those products into the marketplace and get our you know exposure of Virginia into the world uh, even better so uh, we're really blessed uh, to be able to have such a diversified agricultural economy in Virginia. So what actions specific actions are, are you taking to further the production of artists and food in Virginia, you know, and getting it sold. I mean, how do you go about doing that? The, I think the biggest thing that we can say that we've done, I mentioned Charles Green, the Department of Agriculture, Consumer Services, Marketing and Development staff. We have a governor who who was represented. He was in the House of Delegates many years ago before he was elected governor and represented a very significant agricultural area of the state, the Virginia Beach. Everybody knows it for the beaches, but there's a lot of agriculture there. So he, he understands. He knows agriculture, knows the value, knows how important it is. So he made it a priority to – not only go out and use the bully pulpit of the governor's office to sell more products in the marketplace, but he got more funding for the Department of Agriculture Marketing Division mm-hmm. to work with our locale, whether it's the Virginia Grown Program that supports our you know, the, the products, the, the raw products themselves, or mm-hmm. the Virginia Finest Program, like Edwards Hams. Um, there's more money there. There's more state resources that are able to promote these products mm-hmm. and help, again, whether it's the farmer's market in southern Virginia or you know a major uh, meat uh, processing facility uh, in the Shenandoah Valley. Um, there's more money. There's more funds there to to help support that and we're very big on return on investment i mean the governor has said numerous times if i'm going to work with our general assembly to get more dollars to get more taxpayer dollars and we're stewards of the taxpayer dollars Mm -hmm. we need to show return on investment so every time that there's a dollar invested we want to make sure that that dollar working with our with our producers our small Mm -hmm. farmers our larger production folks we want to make sure that they're getting that return on investment through their sales whether it's to new york or to china or england wherever we want to make sure that that we're doing everything that we can to help show that return on investment. And we've had some great successes. I mean, the fact that I'm sitting in Brooklyn talking with you about Virginia products that are available here, whether mm-hmm. it's Edwards hams or peanuts or wines, or whether we're talking about China or England or Israel or India, um, we're showing those return on investments. In fact, we leave New York today 
to go to Canada. Canada, right. And we're going to make an announcement tomorrow about Because they're it. your third biggest uh, yes. supporter, right? They're the fir- third largest uh, export uh, uh, customer of ours, about $220 million a year in agricultural exports. And we'll be making an announcement tomorrow about a new export deal from Virginia to Canada. Um, and that deal probably would not have happened were it not for those new resources that the governor and the General mm-hmm. Assembly worked together to get. So that's just a uh, – it's a good example, I think, of the commitment right from the highest level of a guy, a governor, who understands agriculture and the importance of it to our economy. Mm, very, very interesting. Well, of course, I've always seen the Virginia Finest as like a check mark, right? Mm-hmm. And that's sold uh, all over. It's like a sign that the state has uh, endorsed a certain product. Yes. Which reminds me of how it works in European – like. France, Italy, like uh, if Familia Romagna has a great product, they put their name behind it. Right. And it's great that you guys are doing the and same we're, thing. We're very strong supporters of the Virginia Finest from the governor's office, my office. Obviously, I was commissioner of the Department of Agriculture where the where the program runs, where Charles Green and his team work. Um, uh, but that you're right. It shows that this is the best of the best that Virginia has to offer. And as I understand it, it's the second oldest trademark program in Virginia right after our Virginia's for Lovers, Mm -hmm. the tourism slogan, which has been around for 40-some years. But Virginia Finest is is well-known. In fact, we've seen very proudly our Virginia Grown, excuse me, Virginia Finest uh, checkmark, uh, uh, check uh, logo in foreign countries and at places like New York as well. So it's it's really neat to know that we're out there advocating for the best of the best of Virginia. Well, Virginia's for Lovers, I thought it was a hippie statement that you were trying to get all the, no, just kidding, but that is a very successful thing. And, uh, well, I mean, uh, a very interesting stat you told me, you're losing 100,000 acres to development a year. year. Yeah. I mean, that's a remarkable statistic. It is. I mean, we're blessed, again, with having millions and millions of acres of farmland in Virginia. Um, But uh, studies show that about 100,000 acres a year have lost to development. And once those acres are gone they're gone in fact every speech that i've given i think over the last three four years and i've been in state government um i've I've asked people when i'm talking about farmland preservation for somebody to raise their hand if they're ever aware of a farm that's been sold to the development that's ever not gone into development it's gone state come back to farming i've never had a hand go up never had an arm go up to signify that so we have a purchase development rights program in virginia and i think it's a great great program the governor's been a big supporter of he's advocated for more money but it's a great program where the state of virginia a locality a county where the farm is located and a farmer work together to permanently preserve working farmland Mm. and it's a it's that partnership so people are it's you know taxpayer dollars at the state level local dollars and a farmer all putting together to make sure that that farm is permanently uh, preserved and always producing those goods and um i'm i'm biased i mean we're doing other land preservation projects in in virginia to make sure that we do keep our natural heritage and, and, and for the long term but the thing about the PDR program is what is that partnership and it's a strategic partnership because uh, a county is not going to just preserve a piece of land that they think is going to be valid it's it's working to make sure that that for the future that that area of the county is going to be an agricultural production county it's mm-hmm. always going to be providing those products it's going to be providing tax revenue it's going to be providing jobs for the local economy and hopefully it'll be in agricultural production you know for years and years and years with never a question around it so that's that's a it's a great program that we're very proud of in virginia and we try to advocate for as much as we can um well two last personal questions one personal for me and and sam 
Uh, if you could talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what you're doing to open new slaughterhouses and what successes you've had in that field. Uh, um, there have been a number of smaller slaughterhouses open in the state of Virginia over the last few years. Uh, uh, some uh, ones in the um, western part of the state, uh, near the Shenandoah Valley, also south central area of Virginia. Smaller regional, and it, as we talked about off the air, it, it's a lot of partnering, a lot of time to bring those people together, the producers together with the operators and there may be grant money involved. A lot of things have to come together. I also think that um, we have been slowed by having new um, custom slaughterhouses in Virginia that because of the economy. I mean, I know I've felt it uh, with in discussions with folks that have had you know large ideas that haven't been able to come to fruition because of the downturn in the economy. So we have people at the Department of Agriculture uh, in our Ag Development Unit that are working with these localities, working with these entrepreneurs, working with people who want to have these slaughterhouses to provide more opportunities for our producers. Um, so I'm hopeful that as we continue to see the economy grow and come back, that we'll might see more of that going on. We might see more slaughterhouses coming online in Virginia in the near future. But again, the last two or three years, there has been some slow growth uh, yeah. in that industry. Well, certainly Heritage Foods, my company is ready to buy when that happens. And I know Sam Edwards down in Virginia is too. So I uh, really hope that, uh, you know, Godspeed to that project. Thank you. Now, the personal question for you, uh, you know, tell us something that, you know, the common person doesn't know about being successful in, in the political sphere. Because it's, uh, I mean, what secrets do you have to, with your chips and stuff and well, getting things accomplished on that level? I have never been elected anything. I'm, I'm appointed by the governor, who's obviously an elected official. But I think, you know, there is a certain amount of, of political uh, issues that we have to tackle. And I think the, the, the biggest secret that... Uh, that I would tell uh, publicly is 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 being diplomatic. Uh, that's one thing I guess I learned from my father is that, you know, whenever you have an idea, whether you, know, you think it's going to be the best thing in the world, you somebody else on the other side is going to have opposition to it or have mm-hmm. reasons for concern. So in agriculture, there's a lot of issues that we face on a regular basis that you know we think are really good ideas, or conversely, we might think are really bad ideas. We try to work together in partnership with our with our private sector very very closely mm-hmm. and and. and and come to middle ground on the issue. So I think that's where the dose of diplomacy comes in. I mean, you have to stand up for your your beliefs, your principles, uh, what, doing what you think is right, but you've got to realize that you're not always going to get everything you want or you're not always going to be able to stop something that you think is bad. So try to find that middle ground. Um, and I think that uh, having um, a good dose of diplomacy uh, in life, uh, whether it's dealing with your spouse or significant mm-hmm. other or uh, politics or in business is, is a very very uh, useful um, attribute to have. And I think uh, I wish I had more of it. I wish I could practice it more often because you you find yourself frustrated from time to time on projects that you're working on. But I, I think that would probably be the little piece of personal advice or, or secret that I would give out if I if I had to. Well, you were um, you've mentioned now twice your father. He also taught you something else to always look at a farmer's hands. Oh, that was see. my grandfather. My grandfather. grandfather. I was born. Yeah. He, he talked about uh, whenever I met uh, someone, particularly if it was another farmer, to look at their hands because you you could tell a lot about a person's hands and and sometimes with farmers unfortunately when you shake their hand or look at their hands you're going to see some injuries that have occurred from farming operations and the conversation that we had beforehand uh even looking at pictures of farmers we saw 
saw one one-handed lady basically yeah and and i, I thought about that uh dialogue with mm-hmm. my grandfather as a as a young child that uh that to look at someone's hands you could tell a lot about them, particularly farmers and i still do that to this day when i shake someone's hand or i look at pictures i'm still looking at their hands <laughs> so we've never really i've never i've had a couple people but you know it's very unusual for us to have a pol- you know someone in politics so i think i'm supposed to ask every time i watch the morning shows are you going to run are you going to be a governor one day no you know i have never had the bug to run I've, I've i was a congressional staffer right out of college and then i spent about 11 or 12 years in the private sector uh the previous governor asked me to be to commissioner of the department of agriculture and consumer services uh, governor mcdonald asked me to be uh, secretary of agriculture and forestry a member of his cabinet but uh, i've enjoyed the public uh sector i've enjoyed serving people my father had been had a combination of um of private and public sector life and he talked about the time that you spend in public sector is giving back to the community and being a good steward of taxpayer dollars so i enjoy that and and i think from where i came from a, a working farm uh, this is a position that I can uh, advocate on behalf of, of the industry farming that put me where I am today. Uh, I've never been a farmer, as we discussed earlier. My grandfather was literally and figuratively pushing me off the farm as a child. He wanted me to do something else. But I wouldn't be sitting here today were it not for that upbringing and the things that I've done uh, with agriculture over the years. So this is a good way for me to give uh, something back. And uh, while I'll never say never about uh, running for anything, I don't have anything like that on the horizon right now and just enjoying my job advocating for Virginia's uh, agriculture and forestry industries. Now, last question. Um, where do people go? I mean, if it's usually a four-year limit, like for the governor, do they go and practice law or is there kind of like a retirement <laughs> position for I, so many, I, so much turnover on that you did. Like government level. You do. It's it's a four year, one four year term, and uh, a lot of uh, the uh, governors over the last few years have been attorneys. Uh, they do go to uh, law firms or law practices around. They also might end up in the private sector consulting for companies. Um, uh, Governor McDonnell is uh, a lawyer by trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, he still has twenty one months left in his term. I have no idea what he's going to do next, but I know that he's going to be successful at whatever it does because of the success he's had. And and I, I, I think that uh, the things that he has done on behalf of agriculture and forestry in Virginia, whatever he does does next, whether it be political or uh, private mm-hmm. sector life, I, I know he'll continue to keep advocating on behalf of those industries in the state because of how important they are and his connection to them uh, from uh, from his House of Delegates years all the way through governor. Well, hopefully the next governor will invite you back to your position so you can build on your successes. Is there a website uh, for uh, if you go to um, www.governor.virginia.gov, uh, that takes you to the governor's main uh, uh, website, and there's cabinets there, and where you can click on the cabinet uh, link, and that'll take you to the Secretary of Agriculture and Forestry. Oh, okay. And we also have the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, which is www.vdax.virginia.gov. And, um, well, we'll get these we'll on get the those site, yeah. so uh, people you. can look on the site and uh, just link directly from there. Well, it's been a real honor. Thanks so much for coming, and much success. Patrick, thanks a lot for having me. I hope I can come back at some point. Absolutely.
Hello, everybody. We're back, and uh, we are going to cover trucking, a really, really fascinating recurring segment on the main course. Uh, we're going to bring in our old buddy, Larry Bocal. Larry, are you with us? Yes, we are. Hello, Cap Patrick. Hold on now. Can you hear me, Larry? Yes, I can. Go All right. <laughs> Marion Nessel turned my uh, microphone off. I'm, she's she's booked on the next show. This is why we can't have guests, uh, you know, just regular old <laughs> guests sitting in the studio before the show. No. Uh, welcome, Larry. Where, where are you right now? We're in Omaha, Nebraska. All right. So, um, Larry, you're obviously the head, uh, you know, the guy who pulled the puppeteer of, uh, you know, one of the largest less than load trucking carriers in the United States called Cannonball Truck Trucking. Is that right? Cannonball Express. That's correct. Based out of Omaha. So um, give us a kind of general state of the union on, on how the trucking industry is going so far in 2012. Well, I always appreciate giving you the update and having me on. Right now, uh, pretty much I'd say it's on the quiet stage after the holidays. The trucking industry is basically settles down and demand is about uh, flat for the next few months because of no really holidays in this type of year except for Easter. Uh, transportation costs, there have been some recent rate increases. Fuel surcharges have been still high. So there's a 28, 30% upcharge in all fuel rates. Uh, trailer costs for purchasing new equipment stabilized pretty much. And it's pretty much status quo since the last time we spoke, nothing really new. So um, what do the people do? I mean, when they uh, are, are, are trucking, what percentage of your clients ship on an every week? It has to get there every week. I mean, I know my business falls into that category, you know, because it's cut specifically for orders of any given week. But um, how? what percentage of your business is, is weekly or it doesn't really matter when it gets there as long as it gets there relatively soon? About 90% of our customers are fresh and frozen meat people, and mm -hmm. shelf life is very important. So to answer your question, generally speaking, all of our customers ship freight every week, generally to the same customers because they want their products to arrive as fresh with so, with so few a shelf life days already off of the product as possible. Mm -hmm. So because of the need to deliver fresh meats uh, with sell-by dates, we handle their customer shipments on a weekly basis. So, week after week. Now, we always talk about whenever you come on recent updates in the law, you know, uh, and uh, basically who creates those laws? I mean, who does the trucking industry answer to ultimately on a government level? Well, it's the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Association that, and the Department of, Motor, uh, of the, what they call the DOT, Department of Transportation. Uh, Transportation. Uh, they they lo uh, they have lobbyers and uh, people that give input on uh, what would be advantageous to make the roads more safer for the motorists, and they pass laws and change the regulations that affect the trucker on how many hours they can drive, which limits the distance and the productivity per day. Now, they're actually uh, just passed a law that's actually putting trucks into rush hour. Well, they're attempting to uh, make a new rule where truckers have to be off between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m. two days straight each week. And between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m., 
they have to have an uh, 11 hour, uh, 10 hours of sleeper birth or a 34 hour restart. The 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. relates to the 34 hour restart. So I'll give you an example. If if the truck is empty at midnight, he has to be off from that 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. Then an additional day and off 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. again. And then those hours have to equal at least 34 hours before he can become a driver again. Hmm. So if he should be empty at noon one day, then he has to be empty till from noon to the following morning at 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. and then continuing on to the next morning from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m., which is more than 34 hours and basically takes two days of productivity out of the trucker's ability to to operate and to generate revenue. So how would you fix the law? Well, I, I'm all in favor of the current laws with 34-hour restarts and 11-hour driving maximum with a 10-hour mandated sleeper berth. But I think taking the drivers off the roads from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. is really the most efficient time for a trucker to travel and operate. Number one, there's less motorists on the road. There's less tourists. The temperatures are cooler and less traffic. So it becomes more productive for a driver in a, in a tractor-trailer to be on the road when there's less traffic, cooler temperatures, and a much better environment to drive, and less construction going on on those hours of the evening. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting just, point. Right. No, what were you going to say? I just, I just don't see the advantage of taking the trucker off of the roads in, in the evening hours and putting them on the daylight hours when you have commuter traffic and rush hour traffic and tourist traffic on the highways during the daytime hmm very very interesting so um this is actually it was a funny question i was talking to the great marion nestle who's waiting to do uh the next show uh uh, straight no chaser and she was like i every time i drive on the highways there's just tens of thousands of trucks i mean the entire right lane is like a wall of trucks who the hell what what's going on what what are they shipping who are those guys i mean i know it's a kind of strange question but i mean these millions of trucks i mean what's in them where are they going where do they come from can you kind of give us our listeners a brief kind of summary of how trucking works in america and what they're carrying i can give you a general overview view we run reefer trailers which are meat products food products there's a lot of what we call dry vans those are container vans with no refrigeration systems they carry anything from paper towels to uh to uh dry uh dry goods pretty much auto parts anything you have that and then there's the intermodal business, which containers come off of vessels that come from overseas, and those containers are placed on chassis, which are frames with wheels on them, and those are pulled across country to vendors that buy imported goods for those containers to be unloaded and then taken back to the steamship lines for return to export companies to do a reload. Hmm. So that generally, basically, the three types are the most large are the intermodal, dry van and a reefer uh, transportation of trucking. What percentage of the trucking industry is the reefer kind? Well, I would say it's only probably about 12 to 15 percent. Uh, it's much more costly to operate reefer trailers. The trailers themselves are expensive. Just the refrigeration units are currently $19,000 new. So if you don't have a reefer on your trailer, that's 19000 less you have to spend, plus the the life of a van is 
longer than a reefer because a reefer will take heavier of use because it has to have a steel floor, insulated walls, mm-hmm. and carry that reefer unit, which causes it to be heavier on the roads and takes more abuse as it bounces across the, the roadways. So if someone's going to get into trucking and they want to buy a big, beautiful cab, what are they going to spend these days? Well, anywhere from 120000 on up. And how beautiful they want it, they could really get in the upper amount of dollars. But a, a good industrial uh, tractor will generate about $120,000 in costs just to become operative by an owner-operator that would go out and purchase one. So now, for instance, do um, now no one would actually buy the, the trailer part, right? I mean, a trucker would never buy the trailer, but would a trucker buy a refrigerated trailer and own that like they would their cab, or is that usually owned by the company that's doing the trucking? Uh, most large companies have company trailers and owner-operators will pull. Our company, all of our owner-operators have their own trailers, which they own and service and manage. Hmm. How so generally speaking, if you want to get in a trucking business, you're talking 120000 minimum for a tractor and 60000 for a refrigerated trailer. Huh. Interesting. How many miles per gallon with all this stuff going on? Well, my fleet averages was 5.63 last quarter. So you can generate anywhere from about five miles per gallon to up to the high sixes and possibly seven if you maintain low speeds and drive during the evening hours when it's cooler and such. But I would say generally my fleet at 5.63 is about the about the average one trucker would expect to generate. Now, how big is your fleet, Larry? I have 110 tractor trailers and owner-operators that uh, operate nationwide. Wow, that's tremendous. Uh, a lot of schedules, a lot of truck lines to connect. Uh, it's a very, very interesting job. What's the toughest day of the week uh, for the tr- for your industry, um, you know, when all the, the stuff happens? Well, generally, Mondays, we make most of our deliveries, about 60%. Each truck has generally 8 to 12 stops, and he'll get 6 or 7 off on Monday and the remainder on Tuesday. So basically, he travels Saturdays and Sundays and then makes... Deliveries in a small region, presumably about 200-mile region on Monday and Tuesday. Once he's empty with his 12th stop, then we generate a truckload. We find truckload business and run it back to Omaha to reload every Friday evening. Hmm. So most of these guys live in the Midwest. Uh, pretty much, pretty much uh, 70 to 80 percent of my fleet live in the Midwest. I have drivers that live in Virginia, North Carolina, and Georgia. But the majority of them live in Omaha, where once they return home Wednesday, Thursday, they're home until Saturday morning, and then they depart for their Monday deliveries. So their their week with their families at home is Wednesday, Thursday, Fridays. Interesting. And uh, do you go into Mexico and Canada? Uh, we used to go into Canada, and with the demand for passports and such, we no longer do so, and we do not go to Mexico, but we take a lot of freight to the borders of, like, Detroit and down to El Paso, where we meet containers by that go into Mexico and Canada, but we personally do not transport over the lines. Very, very nice. So, um, this is a great interview. Uh, I very much enjoy uh, getting this update. So, this is now, Larry's agreed, it's official. If, if you're listening out there and enjoyed this segment, this will be a, an officially recurring, quote-unquote, recurring segment, because uh, there's a lot to, to learn from. Uh... Now, Larry, 
almost everything's been on a truck. Can you name anything that has never been on a truck? No, I really can't. Pretty much uh, the United States travels with trucks from point A to point B, and Chicago being the transportation hub of the world where they have not only airline but uh, trucking and everything else. Uh, it all it pretty much centers in the Midwest, Chicago, Omaha being in the center of the United States. Uh, most of the large national carriers are located in the proximity of Omaha, Nebraska, because we're so centrally located in the country and a two-day drive to the coast to deliver any products Fridays for Monday. So mm -hmm. most trucking generated and used to generate from the rural country driver, the farm boy that used to want to go into trucking, and that's, I think, why... It, it generally started in the Midwest, hmm. but you have large carriers with distribution outlets that are located four and five locations around the country now, hub to hub to hub is what they travel. Hmm. So. Kind of like a Pony Express. So, so very interesting. Um, well, thanks so much for coming on, Larry. And um, welcome. If you have any oh, news, you enjoy it. yeah, we do too. Um, and have a good rest of your Sunday. Well, thank you. Take care. Okay, you too. Uh, we'll right. take a quick break and conclude the show. Well, Jack, I think that was the best show I did this week. What do you think? I think it's the first time you said that. Um, <laughs> what? That was great. Larry's awesome. Man. Yeah, Larry is a real wealth of information. And, you know, I'm always amazed. I mean, New York City, everything comes on a truck. Every deli, every industrial kitchen, every, uh, you know, paper good. I mean, it's coming basically by van, usually, you know, from, from New Jersey or something. It's, it's really wild. It is. And I have to say, I also operate best between 1 and 5 a.m. on the road. <laughs> so uh, who's coming on next? Uh, Dr. Marion Nessel. Is that right, Jack? That's right. On Katie Keeper's Straight No Chaser at 1 p.m. And then we've got uh, our friends Mike and Judy at 2 o'clock. Okay. They have some rock and roll publicists. Very nice. That sounds sexy. That's the sexiest show on the network. It is. And then we have... Mike uh, is the sexiest host. The Morning After with Jason Colucci. He's going to have David Gelb, who directed uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which is this really excellent sushi film that I believe is playing at IFC now. Mm -hmm. so sounds that, sexy also. That, <laughs> and then, of course, the sexiest at 4.30, uh, Curtis B. Wayne and the Architecture Show, Burning Down the House. Best architecture show on HRN. That's right. All right, Jack. Great job. We'll be back next week. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. <laughs>